Words are powerful. Words affect destinies. Words can affect an individual, a family, a country. People go to war over words, quite literally. But not every word should be given value or esteem or gravitas, weight. When a child returns from school and relates the words that were said to him in the school playground by someone, in tears. This was said to me, mommy. The mother would often respond by saying something like, don't listen to him. They don't know what they're talking about. That's not someone whose words should be given any weight. In other words, consider the source. As we consider, again, this theme of Sola Scriptura, I'd like us to understand the value and the weight of what God has given us in his word. And nothing else compares. Nothing. Let God be true, every man a liar. This is the word of God here in our Bibles. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. It's uh, the beginning, of, of course, of the gospel of Luke. And Luke has already informed us of his intentions in the first four verses of the why behind the book. But in verse 5, we read these words. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. I'm not going to bring out all that we could bring out in this passage, but I want to make a point. Here in Luke chapter 1, the angel announces to Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth is to have a son, who we'll come to know as John the Baptist. Zechariah protests that his wife is too old and He's an old man too. But note Gabriel's response in verse 19. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. He was saying in unmistakable terms, Zacharias, consider the source of this announcement. I am Gabriel. I've just come from the immediate presence of the Lord. The message, therefore, comes with the highest possible authority. So don't think you're too old. Do you think God didn't take that into account when he's given now you this promise? This announcement, because of the source, destroys all human limitations. Zechariah probably said something like, oh, maybe he didn't even get those those." letters out, those, that word out. Maybe he never even said, oh, but if you read the rest of the story, that's about all he would say for the next nine months. Let's not fail, though, to notice the point being made. The claim of the angel is, I'm Gabriel, and I've come from the presence of the Lord, and that should have weight, massive weight, When we look at our Bibles, the claim Scripture makes for itself is exactly this. This is the very Word of God Himself, the Word of God Almighty. Now, simply making a claim doesn't make it so. Anyone can be claiming, anyone can claim to be speaking for God, but what would happen to our confidence in a claim such as this if someone claim to be speaking with the authority of God, but we were able to find obvious mistakes, discrepancies, errors. What would happen to our confidence in that claim if someone is saying, I'm speaking with the authority of God? I think we all know the answer. We begin to question the fact that this person is speaking for God. Why? Because of this. Although we expect human beings to make mistakes, we don't expect God to make mistakes. So if the Bible claims to be the Word of God and is not the Word of God, it could still be generally true, but the claim would be exposed as a fraud. I I wouldn't devote my life to worshipping and serving someone about whom I know that what comes from that source has proven to be fraudulent. That would be akin to intellectual suicide. I couldn't do it. The point is, 
when a claim is made that something is the word of God, the stakes are really high, very high. Either it demands our complete attention, our complete obedience, or else it's a fraud. And it's not even, if it's a book, it's not even a good book to read. Think about that. The stakes are really high. Moving on from Luke, let's go to the end of our Bibles, close to it anyway, 2 Peter chapter 1, where the Apostle Peter is um, speaking, or writing here, and uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1, says familiar words, but I'd like us to, to just have them fresh in our minds again. 2 Peter chapter 1, and in relating the fact that he's had the most amazing experience, almost unique. There were only three that had this experience, Peter, James, and John on the mountain. He saw Christ in a way no one else on earth did in his transfigurated state on the mountain. They, the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration, the, 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 the Mount was actually called this, the Mount of transfiguration because something amazing happened there and as Peter relates something regarding this he points to another source which is of higher authority than even this experience now he had the big one a lot of people are chasing experiences he had the big one seeing Christ transfigured on the mountain but what did he write second Peter chapter 1 verse 16 for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain." He's relating this experience. But then he turns to the Word of God and he writes this, verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, made more sure, another translation reads. More sure than what? Than the greatest experience known to man. We have the prophetic word made more sure, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Verse 21 again, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of God, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This, the Holy Spirit superintended the writing of Scripture. Now, there were various different ways that happened. In the book of Revelation, John was told, write these words down. It was definitely a dictation process. That's not the case in Luke, if you read the opening verses. Different ways, but in each case, in both cases, and in all cases where we have Scripture, 
the Holy Spirit superintended, to use the phrase, men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They wrote what they wanted to write, and yet everything they wrote was what the Holy Spirit wanted them to write. Inspiration. The Greek word in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is well known. If we don't know it, it's a great word to have in your vocabulary. The Greek word theopneustos, you spell that T-H-E-O-P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S, that's in English. Theopneustos, the P is normally silent, theopneustos, and theos means God. And then the second word is the word for breathe, and so theotneustos means God breathed, and that's in fact how the ESV, the English Standard Version, translates the words. All scripture is God breathed. Let's go to Second Timothy. Let's, let's see that again. I'd love to just see these words again. Let's refresh our minds. Second Timothy chapter 3. And verse... 10. You, however, Paul writing to Timothy, followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. You know the source. How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is God-breathed. I believe the NIV speaks of it in that term, in those terms. God-breathed. Breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, Equipped for every good work. Just, just some highlights here. Verse 13, these wicked people are evil because they deceive and deception is a distortion of truth. Do you notice they're called evil? Evil people and imposters. There's a moral issue when truth is twisted. It's not just a misstep. There's evil in this. When the cults go around the neighborhood proclaiming a false god and false gospel, there's a moral aspect to that which makes it much more dangerous than even a drug pusher knocking on a door trying to sell drugs, though that's normally not the way they go about their business. But to dispense untruth and deception is an evil thing. Very, very evil. While a drug pusher could cause people and does cause people to die physically because people get dependent on those drugs and um, 
all sorts of ramifications ensue. Guns can be involved and life is over for people that are addicted unless they get a lot of help, unless they come through. It's, it's a horrible thing, horrible thing, moral evil. But so, and even more so, is the dispension, the dispersion of untruth, of lies, of deception. Deceive people, deceive people, and that's morally reprehensible. So verse 13 speaks of these people as evil because they deceive, and deception is always a distortion of truth. In verses 14 through 16, note that phrase, knowing from whom you have learned them, or in other words, consider the source. So in so many words, Paul says, Timothy, remember whom you learned from, or from childhood you've learned the sacred writings. And then he goes on to say, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, in understanding the fact that we have the God-breathed scriptures, we have something that is unlike any other thing that has been written. It's incalculable riches to have even a verse of Scripture, to have a full Bible, the God-breathed writings, the God-breathed Scripture. It's breathed out by God. That's talking about the source of Scripture. That's what Paul was affirming to Timothy, all scripture has its source in God, has its source as being very much breathed out by God. Anything that's scripture by its very nature is God-breathed. That's the message. I don't believe we could find a text that more clearly affirms the fact that scripture is the word of God than this one, 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God, God breathed. The authority of Scripture is rooted and grounded in its source. Let me say that again. The authority of Scripture is rooted and grounded in its source. That's why, for example, in the Old Testament, prophets wouldn't start their message with, I say, or thus says Jeremiah, thus says Isaiah, but thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. In our day, we could quote news sources and we could say CNN says this, Fox News says this, but this is what the Lord says. (laughs) The authority of Scripture stems from the fact that it's God who is the source. Notice verse 16 and 17 teaches us something else that's very significant in our study of Sola Scriptura. Notice that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, in order that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work, everything 
that would ever be encountered in ministry, the Word of God equips the man of God for that. May you be complete, equipped for every good work. That word um, equip is, is, is powerful. Complete is a powerful word too. It means fitted, able to meet all demands. It means qualified. You see, we're not left without the voice of God. We have scripture. When the church listens to scripture, she is hearing her Lord speaking to her. The divine authority is derived from scripture itself. The word of God has brought forth the church. It's not the other way around. It's not the church that has given us the word. This is a very important distinction. It's the word that has given us the church, brought forth the church. And the church submits to the authority of the word. In other words, the church isn't the authority. The word of God is, and the church submits to it and relates that word to others, holding up the word as a pillar. The church, the local church, is the pillar and ground, foundation of the truth. And a pillar holds something else other than itself up job of the church, the task of the church is to hold the word of God up. Here's my point. If another source of authority was necessary, such as tradition, as in the Roman Catholic Church, surely Paul would have directed us to it in order that we might be complete. No, the word of God makes the man of God equipped, thoroughly equipped and complete. Let me say that again. If another source of authority such as tradition was necessary, Paul would have told us about it. Paul would have directed us to it so that we might be complete, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. Concerning this, Dr. James White writes, Paul was not satisfied to merely state that the man of God may be complete. He goes on to define what he means, fully equipped for every good work. Various lexical sources list as meanings fit out, to furnish completely, and equip. Most significantly, we find the word sufficient used to describe this term as well. It means to make someone completely adequate or sufficient for something. To make adequate, to furnish completely, to cause to be fully qualified adequacy. That's, that's the meaning of the word. If the scripture, that's the end of the quote. If, if the scripture fully equips the man of God for every good work, then the scriptures are sufficient for the task. Dr. White goes on to write, if I'm a store owner who can fully equip a hiker to hike the Grand Canyon, and if I have the resources and abilities to provide everything he needs in the way of supply, supplies, hiking gear, shoes, maps, food, etc., does it not follow that I am a sufficient source of supply for the hiker? If he has to go next door to another shop for a few more things, and then to a third shop for some things that neither mine nor the other shop uh, had, then none of us are sufficient to equip the hiker. 
But if that hiker can come to my shop alone and get everything he needs to accomplish his task, then I can rightly call myself a sufficient equipper of a hiker of the Grand Canyon. In the exact same way, the scriptures are able to fully equip the man of God so that he is able to do every good work. No one serving God has to search about for other sources. The inspired scriptures are the sufficient source for a person's needs in ministry. End of quote. That which is God-breathed is able by its very nature to give us the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And it is fully able to equip, to fully equip the man of God for the work of the ministry. Let's talk very, very briefly about the canon of Scripture. Uh, C-A-N-O-N, not two N's. It's not a, a, a canon as we have with a, a cannon ball and the firing of a cannon. A cannon uh, is a different word, and it's a word you'll find in theological uh, books regarding Scripture. Don't be worried about the word if it's a new word. Just learn it. Canon, the canon of Scripture. And it refers to what is God-breathed? What is the God-breathed content for the Bible? The Bible is a collection of books. It's actually more of a library than a book. And the canon refers to all of the inspired book. the, The word canon means measuring rule. And these books are the measuring rule for any other thought, any other doctrine. Our doctrine, the things we believe, should have its source in the Scripture. And the canon is the collection of the books that we call Scripture, the Bible. The Bible is a collection of books, more than one book. It's a library of books. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, making a total of 66. It took approximately 40 authors to write these books over a period of around 1,500 years. We could talk a lot about how these books got together in the Bible. We're not going to do that on, on the, at, at this point. But there was an incident or kind of an, uh, 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 a prolonged incident in the life of Martin Luther regarding the book of James. Early on in his ministry, an early Luther, we would say, had a problem with the epistle of James. Luther was standing against the entire known world with the revelation of sola fide or justification by faith alone. And he was encountering many in the Roman Catholic Church who quoted the book of James to dismiss him. Luther, for some time, couldn't reconcile, reconcile James's words in chapter 2 of his epistle with Paul's clear words in Romans and Galatians. And an early Martin Luther concluded that James was merely, quote, an epistle of straw, end of quote. A strawy epistle. This has led some to argue that Luther didn't believe that the Bible was inspired by God. For they say, how could he believe the Bible's the word of God and then say the book of James was a strawy epistle? Yet people confuse something very, very important here. A couple of issues. 
that need to be distinguished carefully. If anyone believed in the inspiration and authority of Scripture, it was Luther. Remember, the Diet of Worms, we covered that last time. He said, the Scriptures never err, E-double-R, never err, never err. There's no error in Scripture. But there was a period in the young life of Luther, he changed his mind later, but there was a period where he had real questions about the book of James, the epistle of James. But this is the point we need to see. Luther's question was not about whether the Bible was inspired, but whether the epistle of James is supposed to be included in the Bible. Can you see the important difference there? For Luther, the entire Bible is inspired. However, he was asking a question concerning which books should be in the Bible. And he had doubts over whether James should have that kind of status. And again, this is a question of canonicity, a question of the canon of Scripture. The word canon comes from the Greek word kanon, and it means a measuring rod, ruler, norm, or standard. The standard by which other things are to be measured or judged. So let's, let's get that word uh, there's two I've mentioned today, the Greek word theognoustos and then the word canon. If we can grasp the concept at least, it will really be of help. How does this relate to us? Well, the 66 books we have in our Bibles, that's the Protestant Bibles. If you were to get a Roman Catholic Bible, it would include extra books. They include something called the Apocrypha. Have you ever heard of that? You may have wondered why the Roman Catholic Church includes books in their canon that are not in our Protestant Bibles. They include books written in the intertestamental period. That's the 400 years between the end of Malachi in our Bibles and Matthew, a 400-year gap, and certain books were written then, and these are known as the Apocrypha. Protestants have not included the books of the Apocrypha in the canon. They're regarded as deuterocanonical books or books on the secondary, secondary that's deutero level of scripture. We have the, the fifth book of our Bible, Deuteronomy, and it literally means the second reading of the law, deutero. And so these are books that we as Protestants would say are deutero, they're secondary, they're on a different level than scripture the deuterocanonical books. Now, it was not until 1546 at the Council of Trent that the Roman Catholic Church officially declared the Apocrypha to be part of the canon, with the exception of First and Second Esdras and the Prayer of Manasseh. You may not have heard of those books, but there we go. It is significant that the Council of Trent was the response of the Roman Catholic Church to Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. Actually, the books of the Apocrypha contain support for Catholic doctrines, Roman Catholic doctrines, such as prayers for the dead and justification by faith plus works. It's important to remember four things about these Apocryphal books. They do not claim for themselves the, kind, the same kind of authority as the Old Testament writings. They don't make such claims. Secondly, 
They were not regarded as scripture by the Jewish people from whom they originated. That's huge. The Jewish people themselves never regarded them as scripture. Three, they were not considered to be scripture by Jesus or the New Testament authors. And four, they contain teachings that are inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. Those are four big things. Let's talk about something you may not have considered. The Third Council of Carthage, (laughs) 397 AD. In church history, the first council that determined which books made up the biblical canon met in Carthage approximately 365 years after the death of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ. What happened, by way of background, there was a heretic roaming around named Marcion, and he produced his own canon. That was the first canon. And he made up his list of what books were inspired. Now, he was heavily influenced by the Gnostics. These were heretics, for sure. And he, Marcion, hated the God of the Old Testament, believing him to be a different God than the one revealed in the New Testament. There's this God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament in Marcion's mind, and he hated the Old Testament. And in his canon, this is Marcion's canon, he only included books that seemed to agree with him. Out would go books like Matthew. Why? Too many quotes from the Old Testament. (laughs) He hated the Old Testament. Matthew was full of it. Matthew was quoting the Old Testament to prove that Jesus was the Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures. So this crisis, because Marcion had produced his canon, this crisis of the heretics canon forced the church to draw up a list of the true books of the New Testament. Even this does not suggest that the church didn't have a Bible up till then. Let me be very, very clear about that. There's no doubt, for example, when the Apostle Paul wrote Romans, it circulated in the early church and was recognized as the Word of God. As the believers at the end of the first century, sometimes referred to as the sub-apostolic fathers, quoted from the writings of the Apostles, from the Gospels, from Paul's writings, They quoted them as full biblical authorities. We know as a matter of historical record that the bulk of the New Testament literature found in our canon functioned as sacred scripture from the very beginning. That's very important to remember. Concerning the vast majority of New Testament books, there was never a question, any question, in the mind of the church as to whether or not they belonged in the canon. But there were a few books about which there were questions. Jude, 2 Peter, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John and Hebrews. Actually, when we think about the New Testament canon, there were around 2,000 pretenders. (laughs) 2,000 books or letters circulating that were pretenders. Yet, We've only got 27 of them in the New Testament. How do we know that the right books got into our Bible? How do we know we have the right 27? Well, 
Of these 2,000 books, there were only ever two or perhaps three that were ever given any serious consider, consideration for include, inclusion in the canon outside of the 27 that we have. The Shepherd of Hermas was one, and First Clement was another. Now, these were actually quite magnificent literature and contained no false doctrine. But the reason these were not included is because the authors themselves indicate, now hear this, the authors themselves indicate a clear difference in the authority with which they were writing and that of the apostles. In other words, they disqualified themselves from inclusion. The other 1998 or so were never given the time of day, so to speak, because they were Gnostic writings, frauds, and everybody knew it. Everyone knew it. It is absolutely clear. Now, is it possible we have a book in the New Testament that shouldn't be there? Uh, yeah, it, it's possible. Is it possible there were books that were written that didn't get into the canon that should have? Yeah, it's, it's possible. But what's the probability? Not one in a hundred trillion chances, really. There was no work of the church in council in the history of the church about which I've got more confidence than that the church made the correct decision as to which book should be in the Bible, in the canon. It was extremely clear, and actually it was not, not a difficult task. Basically, now it's a little bit more involved in this, but basically there were three criteria for canonicity. The council, the council of Carthage asked, one, was this book written by an apostle or endorsed by an apostle? Now, Mark was not an apostle. We have the gospel of Mark, but Mark wasn't an apostle, but he was Peter's secretary, the gospel of Mark could be described as Peter's gospel, if you will. Likewise, Luke, who wrote both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, was not an apostle, but had the endorsement of Paul. Luke was the companion of Paul on many of his missionary journeys. So that's how we understand question one. Was this book written by an apostle or endorsed by an apostle? That's Criteria number one. Criteria number two, was this book recognized by the early church as scripture from the very beginning? That was a key question. And then number three, if a, if a book met these first two criteria, which meant just about everything else was ruled out, of course, <laughs> if the book under consideration met these first two criteria, it was either written by an apostle or endorsed by an apostle, or else, too, it was recognized by the early church as scripture from the very beginning. If a book met these first two criteria, which ruled most out, and there was any question about a book like Jude or Second Peter, the question then was, does this book contain anything in it that contradicts the rest of the New Testament, about which there is no question as to canonicity? In other words, this was the question of conformity. Does this book conform to biblical doctrine?
under the providential hand of God, this was a very thorough process and one I don't believe any Christian needs to be concerned about. I certainly lose no sleep over this. <laughs> I certainly have not, I've lost no sleep at all over it. We've got every reason, we have every reason to believe with the fullest possible confidence that the right books by the grace of God have been delivered safely through the ages to the church today. I believe in the usefulness of many books. I would do. I'm an author. I've written a couple of books and uh, I've, I've, I write on a blog and I hope that what I have written is helpful, but it's not on the level of scripture. And here's the point. Nothing else is. All scripture is God-breathed, but nothing else is and nothing else is pointed to in scripture as being God-breathed. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a right understanding of Sola Scriptura. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. May it bless the people of God. May we understand what we have when we have the Bible in our hands, the very Word of God. And may we live in the good of it, live under it, with it being authority over us. If we could picture in our minds us and then a Bible above us, that's how you've called us to live, Lord, under the authority of Scripture. For when we're under the authority of Scripture, we are under the authority of God himself. God being the source of all Scripture. Lord, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.